Good morning, Grace Hill. My name's Monty McCullough. I'm one of the elders here, and it uh, truly is uh, my blessing to be able to bring the Word of God to us this morning. The theme for our Advent season message is the promise of hope. Last week, Evan walked us through an Isaiah passage where God tells of doing everything he can to make a fertile and fruitful vineyard out of his people. So in Isaiah 5-4, we read, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And we see that Israel and Judah produced wild grapes, or as Evan explained it to us, it's, it's, it's uh, interpreted stink fruit. Then we see that God did indeed cut down that vineyard or that tree by allowing nations to come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and carry away the inhabitants to foreign lands because they did not follow God or worship him. So we saw in Isaiah 6:13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Evan pointed out to us the glimmer of hope that we see in this holy seed. That stump is the stump of Jesse, King David's father. The holy seed, Jesus, would come through David's line. Will you please pray with me? Father, Lord God, Illumine our hearts and eyes to see your glory, your plan, your love for each and every one of us who have acted no less than your people Israel and Judah acted in last week's reading. I pray that we would see your promises. I pray that we would see the hope that you have said is ours if we would but believe. Use your word during this time to do this. Tell us great and hidden things that we have not known. Cause our hearts to burn within us as you talk to us through your word and open to us your scriptures. Protect me to speak your truth. Protect those who are listening to hear from you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I was uh, blessed to be asked to preach during uh, our Advent time um, while Alan, our pastor, is on sabbatical, and I'm uh, truly blessed that he and Kim are here, because he's not off sabbatical today, so <laughs> just letting you know, but he will be back next week. Um, the Advent passages had already been selected for this season in our church, and all selections are from the Old Testament, and I've been blessed going through them. I hope to show us all that the promises given to us through Moses and the prophets are fulfilled in the very one who we anticipate being born each Christmas, each year, our Lord Jesus Christ. His birth was the first advent, 
and he will return for a second advent. We just got through hearing about this second advent in our study of Romans 8. Romans 8, through 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The message of hope that was picked for this Sunday is the righteous branch will accomplish justice. And I would like to subtitle this with the tag, The Faithful Promises of God. And all of this is centered on the prophecy in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. So let's read through that again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Once I found out the passage and message of hope that I would preach for the Advent, I started to meditate on it. I also had a bit of a recoil effect for the theme surrounding justice because of how the church in America has been reacting to the message of justice. I did not want to center the message on justice because of the cultural differences that we may think that it should look like. I wanted to be used for a message of truth and hope, of love and joy, and of grace and mercy. I just wanted to declare who Jesus is. I did not want to have you leave this place being in a controversial frame of mind. But I'd like to take you down the journey that I had while meditating on this scripture and the blessing that it was. I have to admit, my first thoughts were, why accomplish justice? Why not just accomplish righteousness? Why can't that be my theme? But I trusted our pastors and their hearts for the Lord, and most of all, I trusted God's sovereignty. So I knew the theme was not off base, especially as it had to do with the scripture that I was to study. So it may have been more for me than you. So I chose to read the scripture almost daily. I chose to look at the context of the scripture and ask the Lord to not only show me his message for today, but that I would enjoy his glory through the journey to this message. So I was basically calling upon the Lord to do also for me what he told Jeremiah he would do for him. So in, in Jeremiah 33, 2, God said to Jeremiah, and this is while he was confined to the courtyard of the guards in Babylon. God said, thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. So, so he's reminding Jeremiah who he is. Because Jeremiah is confined in the courtyard of the cards of Babylon. And then he says this to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, 3. He says, call to me and I will answer you. 
and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So this became my prayer. So this became my prayer about seeing God's word and message about justice. So one day I was having coffee with uh, Nick Lamont, um, who happens to be running my slides. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> and we were looking at scriptures and acts. And I'm, I'm not totally sure what brought up the question about the reality of heaven and hell. But I do remember asking him if we, he remembered the story of, uh, that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. So we turned to Luke 16 to read it. And I would like to read that to you this morning. And I, there's a method to my madness here, so hang with me. And it's in Luke 16. And I might tell you that, that um, in Luke 16, 14, it says that the, the Pharisees were ridiculing Jesus. And so Jesus is, said this to them in response to their, their ridiculing him in Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In verse 16, where it says, everyone forces his way into it, I like the way the New Living Translation explains it as, everyone is eager to get in. So let's read the story of, of um, the rich man and Lazarus the beggar, starting in verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Nick and I were noticing that Jesus is telling us that all of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, is enough to believe. And that even if someone, maybe even Jesus, were to come back from the dead with a message that the rich man wanted Lazarus to deliver to his brothers, neither will people be convinced about the kingdom of God, even if Jesus comes back from the dead. Then, while we were talking about why Jesus would say Moses and the prophets is enough, Nick and I went down a, another path. I asked Nick if he remembered the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus when our resurrected Jesus walked with them. And so we turned to Luke 24 to read that story. And I'm going to read it to you. So this is Luke 24. And it's the same day that Jesus has risen from the grave. Starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? <laughs> and I find this funny. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he, they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to these two men, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I'm sorry, that ends with an exclamation point. Let me do that again. O foolish ones and slow to believe a slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The beginning and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, seven miles away. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. After this time with Nick and talking about these things and about what our Lord Jesus had said about the Old Testament scriptures, I had a more burning desire to see what the Lord had for me in the passage for this Advent Sunday. So I started to look at the words and phrases. Let me read them to you again with an emphasis that gripped me. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What is this justice that the branch will execute? What is the righteousness that the branch will execute? I want to submit to you that the justice and righteousness is what God did and will do that is the answer to what more he could do for his vineyard, his people that do not worship him with their lives, but he loves them anyway. In Numbers twenty-three nineteen, the Lord God gave words to Balaam to say to Balak, that are true, not just for that day, but for us to realize where all God's promises are true. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So I have a question for you today. Won't he do it? For everything in his scriptures, his promises and his prophecies, won't he do it? In the second letter to the Corinthians, when Paul's explaining his change of plans to the Corinthians, he says the following in 2 Corinthians 1, 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God, Moses and the prophets, all those promises, find their yes in Jesus. Jesus interpreted for the two men on the road to Emmaus how all the scriptures were concerning Jesus and pointing to Jesus, the Christ. Will God cause a righteous branch to spring up for David? 
Will he? Won't he do it? Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But the righteousness he, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Did God cause a branch to spring up for David? Was the Messiah Christ born in the line of David? The yes to that promise is found in Jesus. Did he do it? Yes. Did God cause... uh, The entire Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says he is coming. The gospel says he is here. Acts proclaims him. The epistles explain him. And Revelation says he's coming again. The very first verse in the Bible is about Jesus. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's agent in creation. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The message unity of the scriptures affirms that there is only one origin of the world, only one entrance of sin and death into the human race. There's only one diagnosis of man's problem. There is only one way of salvation. And there is one end of the age, final judgment, and one comprehensive state. In the Old Testament, there is only one way of salvation, and it's the same way of salvation we find in the New Testament. It is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus explained it to the men on the road that it was necessary that the Christ had to suffer and enter into his glory. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The reason Jesus tells the men that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter his glory is because those things were prophesied in the scriptures. They needed to be fulfilled with great precision or you and I might not believe that God fulfills his promises and will fulfill them even yet. Genesis 3.15 tells of his necessary suffering from the very beginning. God speaking to the serpent says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus, who is the seed, the offspring of the woman, will be bruised. He will suffer. 
In Genesis 3, 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This tells of an animal in the garden that must be slain and skinned in order to clothe Adam and Eve, which was also a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 4, 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. This tells of a blood sacrifice that must be shed in order for it to be an acceptable offering. Sacrifice. Genesis 22, 13 through 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is to the said to this day, the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The story of Abraham offering up his only son only to have God stop him and provide a ram tells of the substitutionary suffering of the Christ, which was necessary. In Exodus 12, we see the foreshadowing of the suffering, suffering Christ in the Passover lamb that must be slain and the blood that must be applied to the lentils of the door, but there must be a death of the one who is innocent on behalf of the one who is guilty. The entire Levitical sacrificial system tells of the sufferings of the Christ. In Leviticus 1 through 5, we read that, that the head of the house must slay the young bull and offer up the blood and skin the burnt offering. We read that the goat must be slain on the day of atonement. In Deuteronomy 21, we read that a cursed man must hang on a tree. In Psalm 22, 1, we see the prophecy of Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to say these things in 22, 16. That for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. In 22, 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Old Testament also tells that his, this suffering servant must be betrayed by a friend who eats bread with him. He must be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He must not have a broken bone. He must be pierced and looked upon as a public spectacle. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, and 53 has suffering servant passages that speak about the necessity of his suffering. He must be the despised one. His back must be striped with lashes. His beard must be plucked out. He must have his appearance marred more than any man and be forsaken of men. He must be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He must bear our griefs and carry our burdens and our sorrows. He must be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He must be oppressed. He must be afflicted. He must be cut off from the land of the living. There is a clear message that the Messiah must come. He must suffer death and rejection. He must be one who will be cast down before he will enter into his glory. These things are what the disciples on the road missed. Why was this necessary? For justice and righteousness. We can clearly see that the message of the cross is an offensive message. It's a message with the suffering of Jesus who bled and died in the place of sinners. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. It's a message of great suffering, sorrow, and sin-bearing that runs throughout the Old Testament. 
The suffering was not the end of the story. It was the means by which he would enter into his glory. It was for justice to be served. Isaiah 53, 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Daniel 7, 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Old Testament is a story of his suffering and glory that is the gospel. I'm going to say that again. The Old Testament is a story of his suffering and his glory that is the gospel. He will bring salvation to his people. He will bring righteousness to his people. The apostles preached the Old Testament. Thousands were converted. Peter on the day of Pentecost preached from Joel 2, 28 through 32, which ends with, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he shared Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Then he goes to Psalm 132, 11. Then he goes back to Psalm 16. Then he goes back, then he goes to Psalm 110, 1. The entire message was from the Old Testament to show the gospel of the Lord and call men to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts 8 also tells of Philip asking him what he is reading, and it's from Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. Then in Acts 8, 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, He told him the good news about Jesus. Of course, this could go on and on, and you don't want me to do that. (laughs) So what's my point in all of that? Did God do what he said he would do in the prophecies and promises concerning the sending of his son, Jesus, to be the Christ, the Messiah? Did he do it? Did Jesus rise from the dead into his glory to see many offspring? Many offspring saved by his substitutionary death as payment for their sins. Did he do it? Will Jesus return? And will he right the wrongs with justice? And will he establish the new heavens and the new earth? And will it be called by the Lord is our righteousness? Won't he do it? This is just another promise that will be fulfilled because all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus, the one we celebrate at Advent. I hope you see that your sins can be saved or have been redeemed by Jesus as was promised and that he was faithful to do all that was necessary to satisfy justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 33 20 through 21 says this. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, if you can do that, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken 
so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne in my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. God just said, if you can make the day and night stop coming when I've appointed them, then you can break the covenant where Jesus will come. Won't he do it? Hebrews 10, I'm gonna leave you with this. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Ben, come back up. Let's, um, let me close this in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for just the giving of your word to us, the giving of everything that you have shown us, the giving of your son, the laying aside of all these things. Father, I pray that, that as we have heard your word this morning, that you will cause our hearts to burn within us, that you will cause us to see things that we have not understood, but now we do. Father, enlighten our hearts. Show us who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.